when change and tears are past. Oh, what a beautiful song as we think about. You know, you, know, you do need to know, I did not know when I chose <laughs> to speak on death that we were going to have a deadly virus. And uh, I hope there's no correlation there other than God just was wanting to get my soul ready for whatever he has in store for me and your soul ready for whatever he has in store for you. We know that death is a reality, whether it's my death, your death, someone else's death. Um, we all have to deal with it, and we will eventually all have to deal with it. And as we just saw, it's a blessed thing. Now, if you're jumping in here now, this is part four of a four-part series, so we're going to hopefully conclude today. If some of this doesn't make sense, uh, you can go back and listen to some of the previous messages. Um, but I do want to say for those of you uh, at home, those of you here as well, we've never experienced anything like this. I mean, I was thinking since I was born in 61, we never experienced anything like this at all. This really is something that I think people would, would think is a sci-fi movie or something. W what is going on? And here we have this COVID-19 virus, and uh, we've just never seen anything like the responses that we're seeing here and the restrictions. And so uh, we know that the Lord has our attention. I pray he has the attention of every last one of us, maybe some that have never thought about Christ as their Lord and Savior, really don't like to think about death. Maybe you're listening today and maybe God's got a hold of you and uh, he, can, he can get you and get your mind on him and realize what a blessed thing it is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not the time for Christians to cower in the corner. It's not. Um, our faith informs us that if we do die, if this is our time, we go to a much better place. It's not a cliche. It's true of us. Um, the worst case scenario for us is we get sick for a little bit of time, and yes, it's a bad sickness, and then we go to glory for eternity. Indeed, the virus and suffering for the virus doesn't sound to me anything as bad as what my cancer has been. So in some ways, maybe I'm not sensitive enough, but um, we know it's a bad virus and we know it's easily caught and we know it's, it's terrible to have and it's hard to overcome. We get that. But for the believer, there is eternity and it's beautiful. Nobody gets to go to paradise except through a door called Jesus Christ. If you go through that door, you get to go to paradise. If you choose another door, you're not going to end up in heaven. You're not going to end up with God or in paradise. Christ said it so clearly in John 14, 6. Listen to this. He said, no one comes to the Father except through me. Pretty restrictive teaching, but also very clear. By the way, nobody goes to judgment once they've believed in Christ. John 5, 24, Jesus said, He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. No judgment, no eternal death for the believer in Jesus. So be encouraged one way or the other. Our future is bright. Now, for the fourth time, we're going to be answering some questions about what the Bible says about death. So far, we've answered four questions. The first was, why do we want to know what happens after death? The second question was, how can we know what happens after death? And that's an interesting question, but we looked at what the Bible says about it through Revelation. Third, what is death exactly? And last time, we spent a lengthy time talking about the fourth question, what will believers in Jesus experience right after we die? We don't really have it laid out for us in order. I gave some things I thought would be in order, but we do have statements in the Bible of what we will see and what we will experience. Today, we're going to ask and answer three more, three more. 
Question number five, what are some misconceptions about the afterlife? What are some misconceptions about the afterlife? Well, one misconception is that believers will feel shame and they will feel sorrow in heaven. If you listen to the last message, you know that's not true, but I would say this is mostly false. The source of this concern is what people have heard in various sermons called the judgment seat of Christ. And I want you to turn in your Bibles to Romans 14, if you have them there with you. And if you're at home, I, I really want you to get your Bible and open it up because you'll get much more out of it. Romans chapter 14. I'm going to look just briefly at verses 10 and 12. The context of this is Paul is writing about believers judging one another, and they shouldn't do that. The, the case that was before them was they were judging uh, those that ate meat sacrificed to idols and those that didn't eat meat sacrificed to idols. And so they had a unity issue there. And Paul is writing about that and giving lots of reasons why we ought not to be judging one another. When we come to verses 10 and 12, we read about this judgment seat of Christ, which is part of Paul's argument. In verse 10, he says, but you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all, notice, stand before the judgment seat of God. And then he gives a proof of that in verse 11. He quotes the Old Testament. And then go down to verse 12. He says, so then each one of us, notice how emphatic that is, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. So uh, it clearly states, we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. This is during the intermediate time. We talked about that. That's the time between our earthly tent body that we have now, this body that we're worried about and is growing old, and our future resurrection body. We'll get some kind of a body, some kind of a uh, way of existing in between that. We call that the intermediate body. During that time, the Bible says we will stand before the Bema judgment seat of Christ. It actually says we'll go up to that seat there. And, um, in Greek, it means that. And so it refers to a place that's mounted by steps or a platform. In Matthew chapter 27 and verse 19, it speaks of, of Pilate's judgment seat. But this is the judgment seat of God and of Christ, no difference between them. Every believer, in other words, is going to stand before that judgment seat and Christ will then ask questions or Christ will evaluate the life of every believer, all the service that you rendered to him, how you lived your life, for him. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, it also says we must stand there. It says that each one of us may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, this is not the great white throne judgment. You don't need to be afraid of that. This is not the judgment spoken of in Revelation 20, where all the unbelievers stand before the throne and they are judged by the deeds that they did. And if anyone's name was not found written in the Lamb's book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is not that. That judgment evaluates the deeds of unbelievers and shows them to be unbelievers. This evaluates the service of believers and rewards them with that service. But 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 13 also hints at this time of judgment. It speaks of worthless works done by saved people. Worthless works done by saved people. Especially, I think, in that context of 1 Corinthians 3, it's evaluating church leaders and how they built on the foundation of Christ. If they minister incorrectly and they're saved, what will happen to them? That passage says their works will be burned up, but they will be saved as through fire. Verse 12 here in Romans 14 concludes, so then each of us shall give an account of himself. Wow, okay. So each of us has to do that. Now, giving an account is an expression that is often used for the keeping of financial records 
All that we've done, in other words, for the Lord is going to be recorded. I don't know if the angels are recording it or God just knows it through his omniscience, but it's all written down and it will all be future evaluated. So yes, there might be that moment when you're before the judgment seat of Christ and you realize that you had a loss of reward because your service was not the way it should have been, but that's hardly a heaven of sorrows. That's hardly a time where we just have sorrows. If there is sorrow, it will quickly give way to an avalanche of joy and paradise and heaven that we talked about last time. The second wrong idea that I want us to dispel here about the afterlife is that believers have to go to purgatory first before they can go to heaven. Um, If you would turn to Romans chapter 4, that will help with explaining why this is not the case. We're still in Romans, so turn to Romans chapter 4. I want to zero in on verses 3 through 5. In Roman Catholic teaching, purgatory is a place where believers go and experience intense suffering over a very long period of time. I mean, they describe it as it can be millions of years. Why do they go there? Well, they think that the souls of believers still have to burn off or expiate their venial sins until they're pure enough. And once they've suffered enough and are pure enough, then they can enter into heaven. There are a few great saints that can die and go from earth to heaven, but the vast majority of us are not like that. And so we would need to go to purgatory according to Roman Catholic teaching. Please don't be troubled by this teaching because purgatory is not in the Bible anywhere. It's just not there. It was taught later in church history. It was taught in order to fit a works system of salvation. Catholicism is a faith plus works that leads to salvation, and therefore sins have to be expiated or burned off in purgatory. In their system, not ours, not the Bible's, faith in Christ alone is not enough to purify your soul. It's not enough to qualify you for heaven. So you have to go through some temporary purification after death in the form of the suffering. And though it's called temporary, as I said, it could last millions of years. That hardly sounds temporary. Obviously, you cannot believe in the gospel of grace and believe in this teaching of purgatory at the same time. In the true gospel, which is here in Romans 4, you are declared righteous by faith alone in Christ alone. Why? Because righteousness, that is Christ's perfect righteousness and his perfect life is instantly credited to our account the moment we believe. We don't deserve it, but we get it. That's why it's called grace, not works. That's the Bible's doctrine of sola fide, salvation by faith alone. Now look at Romans 4, 3 through 5. It says, for what does the scripture say? And it goes to, what happened to the guys in the Old Testament? How did they get saved? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's it right there from the Old Testament. Verse four, now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. In other words, you go to work, you earn wages. That's not a favor to you. That's something that is owed to you. But look at verse five. But to the one who does not work, notice he's not doing any work at all, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Wow, that's faith alone. It's faith apart from works. I remember a uh, Dr. Walter Martin, when he was still living, debating a Jesuit priest on this very passage about how do you get justified? Do you get justified by faith plus works or do you get justified by faith alone? And uh, Dr. Martin kept reading it. The one who does not work, does not work. And he kept saying the not part over and over again 
because he wasn't getting that. It's not faith plus works, it's faith alone. Does not work. He credits the ungodly with the righteousness of Christ. Wow. So we're justified, that is declared righteous, simply by faith alone. So purgatory is contradicted by the gospel. Purgatory, by the way, is also contradicted by what the believers immediately experience. That is, they go right into the presence of God in paradise, which is joyful, and they don't need to experience any pain. A third misconception about the afterlife, and I need to say this because we've described heaven as the way the Bible does, I hope, as a beautiful and glorious place. Some people might hear that and they might think suicide is a fast track to heaven. Some might think that. I'm concerned that some might, that some would hear all of this glorious teaching and then conclude, you know, I'm looking at my life and it's kind of uneventful and boring. Um, It's kind of sad. I don't want to live here anymore. Look at what the Bible says about heaven. I'm just going to kill myself and go and be done with it. I want an exit out of life. And um, I'm just concerned someone hears this wrongly. And so uh, please understand that the glories of heaven is not an endorsement for murdering yourself because that's what suicide is. Suicide is murder of self. It's not a noble sacrifice for other people. It's not laying down your life for others as Jesus Christ did. It is killing the one life that God gave to you, the one life he gave to you to glorify him, to let your light shine before men in such a way they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. It's taking that one vehicle for glorifying God and killing it. Suicide is always wrong. Suicide is always a sin. Suicide is never the right ethical decision to choose. It is never God's will we take our own lives. It's God's will that we live it to the end, no matter how hard life is, no matter how many trials you go through, no matter how many disappointments may pile on you at one time, it is still God's will that you live to the end to his glory. I was reading an article about suicide uh, recently. It was trying to uh, get across the idea that ancient people did not view suicide as unfavorably as modern people do. Um, And it went on to say, actually, it was a noble act in some cases. I was very unconvinced from the samples they were giving. You read the Bible for yourself and look at the samples and you will see the Bible never speaks well of suicide. Couldn't find anywhere where it ever exhorts it, it says it's a good example, or says anything good comes from it. It's always recorded as a tragedy. Someone's life is a tragedy and it ends in a tragedy. Judas Iscariot is the prime example. He's he's led by greed. The devil gets into him. He betrays the son of man, the son of God, for 30 pieces of silver. He realizes he betrayed innocent blood and he goes out and he destroys his own life. Tragic ending. Ahithophel hanged himself after betraying King David. 2 Samuel chapter 17. Zimri burned down his house around him after military defeat in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 18. And there are other examples that are given. They're all tragic. There's nothing good about it. I preached through the life of Elijah and I got to preach through the book of Jonah and I was fascinated that both of those men got very depressed. Very depressed. In fact, Elijah wanted to die. He said to the Lord, take my life. You know, I'm I'm kind of done. 
And, and Jonah said, I'm angry and depressed to the point of death. Neither of those men who were believers took their lives. They realized that ultimately it was not their right to do that. That if God had more for them to do, even as discouraged and disgusted as they were with where their life ended up, they were not to touch their life. They were let God, who is the author of life, be the sovereign over life. Some are asking these days, is it possible for a true Christian to commit suicide? I can't say in every case I know what is going on in the heart of people. Maybe some begin to commit suicide and they realize it's wrong and they repent of it midstream, but they can't stop what they did and they end up dying. I don't know all of the scenarios that are out there. I can't be the final judge of everyone's heart. Um, God knows the hearts of everyone, whether they have saving faith or not. He'll be the judge of that. I can say that the more a person lives by despair and does not live by faith, the harder it is to affirm their faith as real. We can always ask, after someone has killed themselves, where was their faith? Where was it? At the moment they needed to show that they had some hope in Christ, where did it go? Where did it disappear to? True saving faith is not a bare intellectual assent to certain truths about Christ. Remember, saving faith always has a measure of confidence to it. You remember um, Hebrews chapter 11 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That means that faith itself has a measure of hope and confidence in it. And we would ask, where did that hope and confidence go? God wants you and me to trust him through the difficulties of life. I mean, I know I have stage four pancreatic cancer. I was counting how many months, I was counting with Susan, how many months has it been since the pain came to me and I've been struggling with greater weakness and all. It's coming up on uh, 18 months now and it's been very, very hard for 18 months. It's been draining. It's, it's really, for me, extremely difficult right now to have energy to keep up with everything. I know you guys see me on Sunday and think I got all this energy. This is not typical throughout the week. I save up as much as I can for this moment uh, for your sake and because I love the Word of God and love to preach, but uh, I know how hard life can be. I can't walk your shoes. You have different trials than me, but I know it's hard. And, um, but God doesn't want us ending life short. He wants us putting our trust in Him. He has a good purpose even for our sufferings, and we need to embrace them. Well, the fourth misconception is that we don't know what happens to babies. That's what is said all the time. Babies who die, we don't know what happens to them. There is a staggering number of infant deaths in the world today and in world history. We could look at the number of abortions that have been in the United States of America since Roe v. Wade. They're saying it's some 65 million babies that have been aborted. Think about that. That's the worst slaughter of human beings in American history, and it's not even close. You could take all of the people that died in combat and all of the wars that we have fought as a nation. It doesn't come anywhere near this number. And then there are countless miscarriages. We believe a soul comes into a child at the point of conception, and they're, they're full human beings when they are miscarried. Well, grieving mothers and fathers want to know, where did my precious baby go. And sometimes they've been named, sometimes this is after birth, and they've been living for a while, and a young toddler dies. Well, 
The answer, honestly, has been debated, and I don't think I'm going to end the debate with this small presentation here. Scripture does not directly ask or answer the question, but Scripture does give clues. And if you've read Dr. MacArthur's book, Safe in the Arms of God, that's a great place to study and get started. I'll give you some, just a little bit of some of the evidence here. Um, David received great comfort when his baby son died. And he said, I'm going to go to him, but he won't come to me. Well, he knew that he would be with his son again. You contrast that with his grown son and rebellious son, have to conclude unbelieving son, Absalom. When he died and when he was killed, David was not able to receive any comfort at all. What a different reaction between the two. One I'm going to go and be with, the other I'll never see again. That's a little bit of a hint. We know all babies are sinners. We talk about the the sin of Adam that's imputed to all of us. Uh, David said that, you know, from my mother's womb, I have been uh, in sin. We, we know that. We don't deny that. But many of us hold that God does elect the ones who die before the age in which they can believe, where they have the intellectual ability to believe. Charles Spurgeon is quoted in that, in a sermon by Dr. MacArthur called The Salvation of Babies Who Die, Part one, that's the name of the sermon, The Salvation of Babies Who Die. That's by Dr. MacArthur. And he quotes Spurgeon as saying this, I think I speak for the entire body. He's talking about uh, Calvinists uh, who believe in election that he knew about in his day, or certainly with exceedingly few exceptions and those unknown to me when I say we hold that all infants who die are elect of God and are therefore Say That was his view, and he, as far as he knew from all of the folks that preached similarly to him in uh, England at that time, I'm sure even abroad, uh, that they believed the same thing. In fact, he went on to argue that that is one way that will prove in the end that more end up being saved and part of the kingdom than those who are not saved, because when you think of the infant mortality in times past and add that all up, that's an incredible number of people. Jesus himself commanded the little children to come to him. Remember, let them come to me. Some might say that's reading too much into that passage, but he was commanding, I want them to come to me. I want them freely to come to me. And so I believe that's what happens in heaven too. He freely welcomes their soul. Many see in scripture an age of accountability, whether that's 12 or some other age, we, we don't know. It certainly fits the idea of justice and a just God that he holds accountable only those who understand what they are doing. And he covers the sins of those who are not old enough to understand or they're not intellectually fit to understand. Both Isaiah chapter 7 verse 16 and Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 39 speak of young children being too young to understand right from wrong. That means in the sense of an adult. And there are other indications like that as well. When you combine that with the fact that every time we look at how God determines who goes into eternal destruction, that is, when we look at how God judges those that are going to go into everlasting hell, it always is weighing what works and deeds they did in this life. You can look up Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 13, or Psalm 62, verse 12, or Proverbs 24, 12, Matthew 16, 27, Romans chapter 2, verse 6, many others. The basis of why God condemns people is always their bad works, their bad deeds. And they do bad deeds, of course, because they're not regenerate. They're not born again. They haven't believed in Christ. Scripture assumes the person lived a life in this world 
that his works would then be evaluated. And so babies didn't have that chance, is the point. I would also add myself that every gospel presentation in the Bible and everyone we give assumes that it's meant for someone that can understand it. Why do we talk to someone that can't understand what we're saying? Just the very fact that there is a a gospel about the cross of Christ that has content to it and about the resurrection that has to be understood. What is a resurrection? Assumes that that was tailor-made for people who can understand. That's the assumption. So at least in my mind, that fits better. The mercy of God fits better with their being exempt from faith who can't believe. So those are some of the misconceptions people have about what happens after a life. Now we're going to move on a little more quickly to question number six. What happens to our bodies at death? <laughs> now, um, the, the first thing to say is our bodies are on a different track. <laughs> They're on a different track than our souls. I don't want to spend long here, but they too have a glorious future. First, the body returns to the ground. We know that. That's called burial. God declared that in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 19. It says, to the dust you shall return. There it is. That's what happens to the body. The Bible speaks well of the burial of the saints. It speaks of burial as sleeping in the ground until the time of the resurrection. Well, second then comes what? As the body lays there and lays there and lays there, the next event is the resurrection for the body. And some will ask, well, how can the body be raised if it was cremated or if a man dies out at sea and a fish eats the body and a bigger fish eats that fish and you know how it goes. But uh, does God know where all the old molecules are to resurrect the body? And I think we can leave that to God. I'll give you this. The, The clear answer from Scripture is that the body that's going to be raised from the dead is the same body that you lived in. How do we know that? What was in Jesus's hands and in his side? Scars, right? That was the point. There wasn't another body that was thrown off behind the rock tomb somewhere. It was the same body that came out of the tomb. It was changed. It was transformed. It was now glorified. But God took that body and he transformed. So I assume he will do that with uh, bodies that have been blown to pieces and all of that. You can ask me, how, to, how does God do that? And I'll most certainly say, I have no idea. I think he'll use a combination of his omnipresence and his omniscience and his omnipotence. And if you were an omnipresent and omniscient and omnipotent person, you'd know how to do that as well. But since I'm not, I'll have to say that's all I can say. I will tell you that in that great resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, and I'd like you to turn there now too, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the great resurrection chapter in the Bible, it really explains the doctrine of the resurrection. In all the way down in verses 35 and 36, Paul notes that the Greeks really didn't like this idea of the resurrection, and they objected to it. And so they asked the question in verse 35 and 36 there, how are the dead raised? They didn't ask that in an inquisitive way. They asked that as a challenge. Well, I would say if we don't have a scientific formula for how the resurrection occurs and how God raises the dead, that doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. Our limited knowledge is not going to eliminate God's sworn testimony. Against objections to the resurrection, Paul answers in verse 36, you fool. In other words, doubting God's plan, doubting God's promises, doubting God's power is a very foolish thing to do. And that's what many, many men nowadays do. And we should not. We should be looking forward to the resurrection of our bodies. If you'll skip over the next little section there and go down to verses 42 through 44, we see there that our future resurrection bodies are actually described for us. There are four adjectives. 
that are given to describe this future body, and none of them are, can, are like our present bodies at all. The first adjective is that our new body, our resurrection body, will be imperishable. It says it is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. In other words, like a seed that you would take. I don't know if you've been doing a lot of gardening around the yard. We've had a warm spring, and we've been kind of locked up for a while. So uh, we've been out doing gardening. What do you do with a seed? You take it and you sow it in the ground and you hope something better looking comes out than just the seed, right? You got this little tiny seed. In some cases, it doesn't look like much. You put it in and this glorious flower or this vegetation or something comes out and that's what we, we look for. It's like a seed. The body is put into the ground in burial, sown into the ground, and then a, a beautiful new form comes out of the ground. In other words, death is but a seed planted in the ground to await what we might call the flower of the resurrection. Or we could say this, cemeteries and graveyards are but seed beds for future resurrection bodies if they have believers in them. Obviously, when it's planted in the ground, that body is a perishable body. It's going to decay. It's going to rot. It's going to ruin. Uh, preserving the old body is... A waste of time. You know what civilization tried their best to preserve all the old bodies, right? The Egyptians, they tried to mummify them. I don't know if you've ever seen a mummy, but it doesn't look all that great. <laughs> I don't know why they're trying to save the old body. They had their reasons, but when the body is raised, it won't be the same old, same old. It won't be rickety and shriveled and in pain and breakable and prone to disease. It will be and praise God for this, it will be imperishable. The second adjective is it will be glorious. That's in verse 43. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. Now, I know we honor people at funerals for the life that they live, but if you look at the body that's died, there's nothing really all that honorable about the body itself. So we look forward to glory. Glory means beautiful and shining and honorable. Glory, if you had a glorious body, you would not be disappointed with it. It'd be something like, wow, look at this body. Of course, we'll be, we will not be in a sinful state at that time, so we won't be too proud of ourselves, uh, and that's good. We'll, we'll be humble, and yet we'll be glorious. Um, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 21 um, testifies to this glorious body as well. It says that Jesus will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory, whatever his body was, after it was raised from the dead, it was glorious. So what will our body look like? Well, it won't look like this. It'll look like, like him. And that's a great thing as well. In Matthew 13, verse 43, it says there, Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Ha! I was just thinking about that shining. You know, you as a believer, the saints of God, you're going to, you're going to shine. You're going to be a glorious being. And that's not all. Third, it will be a powerful body. It is sown in weakness, still in the same verse. It is raised in power. Yeah, when the body dies, it's weak. My body's hurting right now. There's a lot of weaknesses in my body. When the body dies, the heart stops. It's not working. The brain waves, they shut down. There's no more strength. There's no more lifting of the arms or legs. There's no more getting up. You push a dead body, you know, get up, get up. It's not going to get up. It's weak. 
really, I think uh, the pride of man is brought low by death, seeing death. I think that's one of the reasons the unbelieving world doesn't like to talk about death and doesn't feel comfortable at funerals because it shows them their humanistic belief or their pride in their self. It's not true. It's not true. They're weak and they're going to end. And they're not going to take anything with them. And everything they work for is not going to, is not going to be established. They wasted their life. They, they have to come to grips with that reality. And there it is right before them. It's weak. They lose. You lose in death. Death just demolishes humanistic belief. However, those who rely on the Lord can go into death, come out the other side in the presence of the Lord, and know the Lord is going to raise their bodies, and their body will be a body of power. The body will have amazing capabilities. That resurrection body is going to have, be able to do things we cannot presently do, and we'll talk about that in a minute. The fourth adjective is that the body will be spiritual. Now, this one gets a little bit misinterpreted here because it makes it sound like it's not going to be a physical body because it says spiritual. But look at verse 44. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If therefore, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Well, the word spiritual is not set opposite of physical, but is set opposite of natural. That means the resurrection body will still have physical attributes. Christ's body did. Christ could still eat. Christ said, I still have flesh and bones. You could touch me. Uh, he was not a spirit. So his body was a real body, his real physical body. Spiritual is meant in that it is opposite of the natural or earthy kind of body. In other words, it originates, the, the, the body we're going to get there originates from a different realm. This body was taken from the ground. It was taken from the earth, and so it's earthy, it's natural. That body will come from heaven. It'll be heavenly. It'll come from where, where Jesus came from. It will be a body that can be touched, but it will be a body not like a body from this earth. A spiritual body is a physical body renovated to prepare it for a heavenly existence and for immortality. It's a, a body that can still descend to earth and live upon the earth in the millennial kingdom, but it's a body that can pass through walls or do other things. Now, if we put all four of these attributes together and we're talking about, okay, what really happens to our, our bodies in the future, this is it. I mean, take a look at your body and then add these, these attributes to it and you realize you have a combination of undying, unfading, imperishable, glorious, that means brilliant, capable of, and, and able to do great, great stuff. And it's formed from the, from the substance of heaven. That's your future body and that's just amazing. A lot of us marvel at the superheroes that are in a lot of the movies, and we think like, wow, wouldn't it be great to be able to do the things that they do? And I think that's one of the reasons we like them. I think God is going to give us a superhero body. I really do. I really believe that. In God's goodness, he's going to provide us a body with incredible capabilities. It comes by faith in Christ, not because we earn it. And, you know, it says a superman that he can leap over tall buildings with a single bound. Maybe we'll be able to do that. I don't know about stopping the locomotives and all of that, but uh, we're going to live a long time. We're going to be able to fly. Christ's body took off from the Mount of Olives without wings. If we're similar to his, that hints at that ability as well. I don't know. I mean, we're not, we don't get a chance to evaluate what's in a resurrection body. We just take the testimony of the disciples who touched it and they ate with him. And they said, hey, he was raised from the dead. He looked similar sometimes. He looked different at other times. But it was the same body because the tomb was empty. 
That's the kind of body we're going to get. In fact, if you look at verse 47, still in 1 Corinthians 15, you can see that he's making a contrast between Adam and Jesus, and he's really making a contrast between the body we get from being a descendant of Adam, the first man, and the body we get by being in Jesus. Verse 47 says, the first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven, from above. You know, the origin of our bodies goes back to Adam. That's where we got these bodies. But to understand the resurrection body, you have to look to Jesus and what kind of a body he got. Heaven produces the second Adam. The first Adam was dug up from the ground. He was not dug up, he was formed from the ground and God produced him from the ground. And the second Adam came down out of heaven. In fact, Jesus claimed that again and again. You'll see those statements over and over that he, he came down from heaven. In John 8, 23, Jesus said, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Say, I originated out of this world and, and the resurrection body that I'm bringing is, is from another realm. When you look at verse 49 here in this chapter, it says, just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. So we got an Adam-like body, we're going to get a Jesus-like body, and it will be gloriously transformed. That's going to be ours. So don't doubt that. That's the future of your body. Now we come to our last question, and maybe the most practical one, um, and that is question number seven. How can I prepare for death? How can you and I prepare for death? Well, I'd like to give you four things, four practical things to do to make sure that you're not just caught off guard when that day comes, because it will come. Either that or the rapture will come. I think there's four things we can be doing. First, view death biblically. If you really understand what the Bible says about death, that's a great way to prepare for death. And hopefully by now you're better prepared to view death the way God views it. Um, we should be filled with courage when death comes our way. Um, David was in 1 Kings 2, 1 and 2. It says, as David's time to die drew near, he charged Solomon and his son saying, I am going the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. He was telling his son to be courageous. I think that shows that he was also being courageous. Our concern about death gets elevated when we get older. Our concern about death gets increased when we get sicker. It also greatly increases when we face something unknown. We have no idea what's going to happen. We don't know how many weeks this virus is going to assail our country. You know, I, I'm, I'm here with a largely empty room. It's, it's not as joyful as having everybody here. And we'd like everybody to be here, but we just don't know how far and wide this thing is going to go or who we're going to lose in the process. Um, but now is not the time for fear. If we long to be with Christ and death brings that for us, then death is our friend. For death is a conquered enemy. We don't die and stay dead. Remember, Jesus said, anyone who believes in me will live even if he dies in John 11. Our divine shepherd has promised to be with us. That's so important to me. I don't want to be left alone. I'm sure you've thought about that. I don't want to be left alone. He promised he will not leave you alone. Think biblically about it. Psalm 23, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. He talks about going through the valley of the shadow of death. I will not be afraid. Why not? For thou art with me. 
When God is with me and I'm assured that God is with me, I can handle anything. I can handle death. Psalm 27.1 says, The Lord is my light and salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Well, I think that extends to death. I don't have to dread death. So when you face the prospect of death, think biblically. When you face a, a car accident, you think, you know, you're afraid. Maybe you're going to die. You're in the hospital or whatever. Or you have a heart attack or cancer or a terrorist attack. Or we had years ago a sniper in this area, some of you remember. No one wanted to even pump their gas because they didn't know if they were going to be picked off next. Or as we're dealing with now, a deadly virus. In these valleys of the shadow of death, know these two truths. God is with us on this side of death, and God will be there, Christ will be there to greet us on that side of death. We will never be alone. Think biblically. Second, remember that God's grace to you will be heightened and increased at the time of death. He knows what you need, the help you'll need at that point in time, and he will heighten that grace. What does God do for us when we near death? Well, in other generations, believers talked about something called dying grace. That doesn't mean that grace was fizzling out. It means that as we approached death, there was an extra measure of assurance granted to a believer, peace, joy, understanding that all is okay. That special enablement that God gives to his children as death draws nigh, rather than having terror, the believer believes and he embraces death and he enters through it boldly. There have been countless Christians just like you and me who I'm sure worried about death. They thought about, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know if I can handle death. But they were able to exit this life well. They are able to exit with confidence because the Lord was with them and gave them grace. Dr. Ron Rhodes beautifully writes this, God will not abandon us in our darkest earthly moment. He will most certainly give us strength when we have none of our own. He will certainly give us his courage when we feel cowardly. He will certainly bring us comfort when we are hurting. Never forget that we will not be alone in death. And remember, we don't need dying grace until death approaches. It will be there on time when it's needed. Psalm 73 and verse 24 says, With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. He's going to receive me and you to glory. God's grace is also provided for those who are left on earth and have to bury their loved ones, the widow or the grieving parent. There is good grieving and there is bad grieving. What's the difference? Good grieving is always filled with hope. Good grieving is honest about the pain. Jesus dealt with his impending death in Hebrews 5, 7. It says, with loud crying and tears. Good grieving is normal. Good grieving is natural. We feel the loss when a close friend moves across the country, even more so when they cross that river of death in which we can't talk to them anymore until we go there. There's no Skyping anybody in heaven. There's no app with which to talk to them. There's no FaceTiming them anymore. 
But what is there left? There is always the solid hope that we will see our loved ones once again. And a third thing to do is live each day to the fullest for God. I don't know how many days I have left or weeks or months. Neither do you, frankly. Every day is a gift from God. Every day is to be lived to the fullest for God. You cannot change the appointed time of your death, but you can choose to live for God with all of your might before your death. If you walk with God closely prior to death, rather than fearing closing your eyes in darkness, you will anticipate opening your eyes to radiant light. If we looked at death correctly, we would conclude that better is the day of death than the day of birth into this world. Think of all the uncertainties that await a child born down here. First of all, many of the infants die. If not, they live and they wait diseases and they die as a child. If they live into their youth, evil grips many young men and women and takes them away as they begin to lust and have greed and their souls are ruined because they crave what they want. Down here, life is hard, constantly hard. Labor is unpleasant. Loss is constant. Up there is rest. Up there is joy. Up there is gain and never losing what we've gained. The day of our death as a believer is greater than the day of our birth here. And fourth and last, you want to know how to prepare for heaven? Ponder heaven often. Uh, ponder, ponder eternity often. The scriptures exhort us to do this. As we move through life and as you're serving the Lord, as you're doing Bible study and everything, realize how many times God gets us to think about the things that are eternal, to think about the coming of Christ and what he will usher in at that time, to think about the courts of heaven, to think about the promises that last into eternity, to think about you can't keep your life down here anyways. Everything down here changes and everything down here ends. And if we're reading scripture correctly, we'll see that. We would view life as we're on a journey. And where are we headed? Well, you remember Pilgrim's Progress. Where was Pilgrim headed? He was headed to the celestial city. That's where he was going. That's where we're headed. We're headed to that final destination. And, and from there, we're going to see the glory of God. And we're going to see him enact the rest of his program. And we're going to be cheering it on. And we're going to return with Jesus Christ and the second coming back to earth. And we're going to be there in the thousand-year millennium. Think about those things. And then, if that weren't enough, then there's eternity. Revelation chapter 21 and 22. God wipes away every tear from our eye as we even sang today. 1 Peter 1, 4. We obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. If you're living for God, there's all inheritance that's reserved in heaven for you. It's better than the bank account you have down here. Trust me. In Romans 8, 18, Paul weighed the sufferings he had in life, and he thought about the glory and the future he was going to get, and he said, these are not worthy to compare. The glory is so much more. All the sufferings combined just aren't weighty enough with the glory we're going to get. That's amazing, because he suffered a lot more than I did. I have. And then 2 Corinthians 5, 2 says, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Long to be there. Long to be with Christ. Dwell upon the things of heaven. It will prepare you for death. Are you right now anticipating going to heaven? If you are, death won't seem all that bad. Death is merely a tunnel that leads to triumph, a gateway that 
goes to God, a path that leads to paradise, an entrance that leads to eternity. I would ask you, if you're watching with us, maybe you joined in and you're not really sure about your relationship with God or you're young, one of the younger ones that's grown up in our church and you haven't given your life to Jesus yet. You know he's true, but you haven't given your life over to him to serve him. I would ask you, are you ready for heaven? Are you prepared? The only way to be prepared is to have a savior take all of your sin away and you can be declared innocent and righteous by God because of the life of Jesus and because he went to the cross to pay for all your sins and was raised from the dead bodily. Have you ever given your life to Jesus, the Son of God? Or are you still trying to run your own life? You're not prepared for heaven. You're not prepared for death. God actually commands you to believe in the name of his Son. Other religions won't do it. He won't accept it. In John 3:36, it says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Please don't resist God today. If he's knocking on your heart, if he's tugging on your mind, there is no chance to be saved after death. After death, Hebrews 9:27 says, comes judgment. And the Bible says, today is the day of salvation. You're hearing of salvation today. Give your life to him today. Be prepared for death today. Come to Christ today. There is no real security in this world. If you believe today, you will be safe for all of eternity. No matter when death comes knocking on your door, when death comes to get you, you'll say, but I have Jesus Christ. He's my Lord and my Savior. And you will be in heaven with Jesus. You will be celebrating when you die. Well, the uh, elders will be in touch with you with any uh, new information we have about how we'll be doing church in the future. None of us knows. We do know Christ is our solid rock. We know that we will be worshiping him next Sunday, um, and uh, we just uh, commend you to God's safety and protection. Father, watch over our sheep, our congregation, any others that listened in today, be watching over our sister churches as well. Uh, help us to be strong and courageous and live boldly for you uh, and have opportunities to witness, Lord, as you grant them. We pray it in Jesus' mighty name, thanking you for the great salvation we have in your Son. Amen.